Amen. Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. We'll finish out this chapter here this morning as we walk through this passage. And today we'll see as we walk through this aspect of the gospel that the gospel makes us one family in Christ. It takes people who don't know each other, have very little, sometimes perhaps nothing in common other than Christ, and makes them one family, brothers and sisters, with the same older brother Jesus and the same father, God himself. As we walk through this text together, we will see that faith in Christ unites us as one family in Christ. Faith in Christ unites us as one family in Christ. So if you have a copy of God's word there with you, I invite you to read along. As I read aloud, Galatians 3, verses 15 through 18. We'll go through the end of the chapter, but we'll just read these first few verses now together. Verse 15. Paul writes, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, into your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Uh, This last fall, so September of 2020, there was a major dust-up. Now, I am not a gamer. So if you're a gamer, you know this better than I, but you may not know the legal side of it, I don't know. But there is a game that has been viral for some time now, Fortnite. And we may have some fans of Fortnite here, I don't know, I am not one of them in terms of I don't really play any of video games, let alone Fortnite. But the reason I know about it is because Fortnite figured out an important workaround. Now many of you sitting here are sitting here with iPhones in your pocket. In fact, you may have been reading your copy of God's Word on your phone. But Apple sort of dominates the tech world, one way they do this is they have their app store, and their app store allows them to collect 30% off of any app sold in their store, anything sold through their store. Well, you can imagine if you're an app creator or an app developer, you create a game or something in particular, you don't like the idea of giving 30% of your money to Apple for doing nothing, just holding your product in their store. Well, Fortnite figured out a way around this. So last fall, they created a way for people to make purchases within the game without paying Apple 30%. Well, Apple sees this, gets really angry. So Apple then pulls Fortnite's app from the store, no longer lets them even sell the app. Well, Fortnite now is angry, and they sue Apple to make them let them use the app in the store. Well, what are these people suing each other over? Breach of contract. What's a contract? A contract is an agreement that parties agree to abide by, and once it's signed, you can't change it. Now, I don't think anyone here should feel sorry for Apple or the makers of Fortnite. I think they're all doing just fine. I think, in in fact, I mean, one thing Apple says is, hey, look, they've made $600 million in our store. They're doing fine. Well, Apple's kind of like the big brother. No one feels sorry for Apple because they're, you know, they have the GDP of multiple countries, you know, in terms of their, their, uh, their company. But the point of this is we all understand that once a contract has been made, signed, and sealed, you can't change it. And here what we have this morning is a little bit of a discussion like that. Once a contract has been made, can you change the agreement? This is how Paul seeks to help us understand what's going on here in verse 15. There has been 
a promise, one promise given by God, and that's what he discusses here. And to help us understand, he uses an illustration like this. Can you breach the contract after it has been made? Verse 15, even with a man-made covenant, no one can annul it after it's been ratified. So what Paul is going to do, he's arguing from the lesser to the greater. In other words, if humans, Apple Fortnite, can't do this, you certainly can't change an agreement that God has made. And so we have this, God has made a covenant with his people, and he's not going to change the terms after he's made it. Well, what covenant is he talking about? He gets into the heart of his argument now in verses 16 and following. Well, if you remember, Paul has been talking a lot about Abraham. In Galatians 3, verse 6, Paul quotes from Genesis 15, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So what is the nature of God's promise, his covenant, his contract with Abraham? Verse 16, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Now in Genesis 15, God tells Abraham that he's going to bless him and his reward will be very great. Well, in that culture, you can't be blessed if you don't have kids. Because your family land, your inheritance passes to your children through the eldest son. And so Abraham, as God is talking to him, says, look God, okay, you promised to bless me. And you promised you're going to bless nations through me. You're going to bless my descendants, but uh, there ain't no kids in my house. So how can this be? What are you talking about? And the Lord speaks to Abraham and he says, look up at the sky and start counting stars. As great as the number of the stars that you actually can't count, so great will your offspring be. Well, the word offspring may or may not be a word you use a lot. We use the word kids or children. But it's an important word in Scripture and particularly in the book of Genesis. So when it shows up here in Genesis 15 and God promises to bless Abraham's offspring, there are echoes going off in our minds of Genesis 3. Because in Genesis 3, we have the record of the saddest day in history. The day when Adam and Eve, in God's perfect covenant creation, the Garden of Eden, sinned and broke God's law. And on that day, God cursed humanity. He cursed the ground and he cursed the serpent. And in this curse of the serpent, in Genesis 3.15, he says, the offspring of the woman will crush the head of the offspring of the serpent. Now, we call this the first gospel. Because it's the first time in Scripture there's a promise of coming redemption. On this day, the first day, when Adam and Eve fall from grace, when they break creation, when they break covenant with the Creator, God promises to send a Redeemer, one who will crush the head of the serpent's. When we arrive in Genesis 15 and God promises an offspring, it's the same word. Genesis 15, God is continuing the promise that it began in Genesis 3. He's saying there is coming one. Now Abraham imagined that this would be his son Isaac. And in one sense this is true because the promise would pass through Isaac, but it would ultimately be fulfilled in a different son, the truer and greater son, Jesus Christ. Not just a son, the son, the offspring, the one who would crush the head of the serpent. Well, where is that promise fulfilled? 
It's a promise made in Genesis 3, a promise repeated in Genesis 15, and verse 16 tells us, Scripture does not say into seeds, referring to all these people, but to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. Genesis 15, verse 5. Look toward heaven, number the stars, Abraham, so shall your offspring be. He doesn't say, so shall your offsprings be, but one offspring will bring this abundant blessing to all people. And then when God made this promise, this one offspring would bless all people. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. You see, God's promise was to Abraham and to this offspring, to the Son, Jesus Christ, the one who will crush the head in Genesis 3, and the promise of the Son who will bless all nations, Genesis 15. They are one promise looking to one Son, Jesus Christ. You see, uh, Paul is arguing you've got multiple records of this one promise. Genesis 3, Genesis 15, they're looking to Jesus. Well, what then is Paul's conclusion, verses 17 and 18? Well, if there's only one promise, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, doesn't annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. There's a lot of legal language here because he's talking about a contract already agreed to. Israel spent some 400 years in slavery in Egypt. But it's not until after the exodus from Egypt that God gives a covenant to Moses at Mount Sinai. But what Paul argues is the passage of 430 years since Abraham doesn't annul God's promise to Abraham. How did Abraham receive the promise? He received it by faith. That's how the promise comes. So the fact that four centuries passed doesn't mean that now it's received by obedience to the law. So verse 18 addresses the question. How does the blessing come to Abraham? What's the answer? God gave it to Abraham by a promise. God didn't say to Abraham, if you keep my law, I will bless you. He said, I will bless you and your offspring. And through you, all nations will be blessed. Well, now back to the argument about the Jews. If, in verse 18, the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by a promise. So what Paul is doing, he's using their own scriptures to argue against them. He's saying, you don't understand the Old Testament. These first century Jews haven't understood that God's plan was never to justify sinners through the law, but always through Jesus Christ. You see, the administration of God's promise has looked different at different points in history. I mean, with Abraham, it's a promise of a land and a people. With Moses, it's, it's the law covenant. With David, it's a promise of eternal kingship. But all of these promises are different administrations of one promise. One eternal coming king, the one who will redeem people, Jesus Christ. The Old Covenant, the Old Testament, is a covenant of promise. The New Covenant is the promise received. Well, if God's covenant has always been a promise of grace through Christ, why do we have the law? Well, let's read verses 19 through 24. Why then the law? That's the very question Paul asks in verse 19. It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, 
An intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. So, why the law? As we discussed a few weeks ago, God's word presents the law in a few different ways. Three uses of the law, yet there is one ultimate way to God. There's the civil use of the law. God restricts evil in the world through the law. Don't steal, so there's less theft. There's the pedagogical use of the law, where God points us to our need for Christ. The law teaches us that we need a savior. Don't covet. We've got hearts that want things we shouldn't want, and God uses the law to show us that we can't actually keep his law. There's the moral use of the law. Love your neighbor as yourself. It reveals God's moral will for creation. But in each of these, the law is a teacher that shows us how we need the gospel. The law prepares us for Christ. In other words, the law has never been an end in itself. Verse 19, it was added because of transgressions. The law didn't replace God's promise to Abraham, but it was added because of sin. The law teaches us about sin, or as Paul put it in Romans 7, verse 7, if it hadn't been for the law, I wouldn't have known sin, because if the law had said, not said, thou shalt not covet, I wouldn't have known what it meant to covet. The law plays a vital role in God's redemptive plan, it's extremely important, but it's never intended to be the final step. It was put in place until the final step came, until the one whom the promise had been made actually came. The law was temporary but important, a transitional but important fixture. Uh, when I was 14, lightning struck a tree next to our house. Most of our house was destroyed by fire and smoke, and then the, what wasn't was destroyed by water. So after this, we rebuilt our house and we changed the structure of it, including the way the front porch looked. And I can remember when the front porch was built, it had four pillars on it. Still does today if you drive up to my mom's house, same house. But those pillars weren't there while we were building the house. In fact, I can remember very clearly during the period of transition as the house was being constructed, there were uh, projectiles supporting the roof of the porch, but they were different. In fact, they were two-by-fours nailed together. And if you drove up to the house today and you saw those same two-by-fours there, you'd say, well, those may work, but they don't look very pretty. The, the roof couldn't be supported without the presence of those temporary pillars, but they were never the final plan. The final plan was always pillars that fit the rest of the house. Important, supporting but transitional. In a similar way, the law is important. It carries the promise of God forward. It shows us the need for the permanent pillar, the pillar and ground of our faith, Jesus Christ. Transitional, but important. 
Well, verse 19 tells us the law was put in place by an intermediary. God gave the law through Moses. So Moses is this kind of preparatory figure pointing the way to Christ. And as verse 20 adds, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Now, if you read verse 20 15 times and find it confusing, you're in good company. Uh, There are more than 300 possible interpretations of this verse. So what we're going to do now is go through them carefully one by one. Not really, don't worry. So there's a lot going on here, but the point of this seems to be in large part that the law, when it arrives at the people, has come to them third hand. God, angel, Moses, people. They're they're way down the line. But God's promise to Abraham is face-to-face, is directly from the one true God. God is one. Well, if the law is temporary, if it's this temporary transitional fixture in the plan of God, verse 21 asks, is it contrary to God's promises? In other words, is God making a promise to Abraham? The promise is received by faith. And then we come along and we come to Moses and the law. And now, through the law, God is working contrary to his own promise. Well, what's the answer? Paul tells us, certainly not. God isn't working against himself to bring about his plans. In other words, God promised to Abraham that there is a coming blessing for all nations. Abraham believed God. God credited his faith as righteousness. So when the law now comes through Moses, does it cancel out the way this promise worked? Certainly not. Verse 21. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. So, to speak theoretically, if you could make yourself righteous by keeping the law, then theoretically, righteousness could be by the law. So, if you are the person who can keep all 613 Old Testament commandments perfectly, you're good to go. For the rest of us, there better be another way. So in contrast to this hypothetical, the reality of is verse 22. The scripture imprisoned everything under sin. Then verse 23 adds, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So how does the law prepare us for Christ? The law restricts. Verse 23, Paul uses two verbs to describe what the law does. It holds us captive. This literally means to be imprisoned, to protect by military guard. The second verb, to imprison, literally means to confine or to hem in. When our family first bought our property in the country outside Greenville, South Carolina, in the upstate, I was seven years old. Now, uh, the upstate, like Charleston, has developed a ton since I was a kid. We first moved out into the country there. There wasn't a lot around us. In fact, we moved out, and one of the things we loved is we had dogs, and, and our dogs had freedom. They had space. They had places to run. I mean, there was a pack of dogs in the neighborhood that would run around together. You couldn't see our neighbor's house. You had to ride your bike up the street to see our neighbor's house. But over time, as the places around us developed and the woods across the street filled up with houses, it meant that there were different restrictions on what our dogs could do. So after some years, we put in an invisible fence. Well, what's the point of the invisible fence? It's to show the dogs what are the boundaries of their activity, where they can go. 
they're no longer free to kind of roam. Now they have to stay within the boundaries of that fence. And they get close to the fence and, you know, there, there's a warning. Like you're getting too close. You can't cross over the boundary. Well, what Paul is saying here is that the fence of the law acts to hem us in, to restrict our activity, to show us the proper boundaries. The problem with us is that we are constantly running up against this invisible fence. Don't bear false witness. You tell that story and you tell it in a way that shades it so you look a little better than maybe was actually true. Love your neighbor as yourself. And we're good with loving our neighbor as long as it doesn't cost us. Shock. And what is God doing through the law? He's demonstrating to us that we can't keep it. It's a little shock to our conscience. God says obey, and we're not obeying. God says love, and we're not loving. God says serve, and we're not serving like God tells us to serve. And the law acts as this constantly present, hemming in fence. And so as we come up against the law, the law disciplines us. Verse 24, the law was our guardian until Christ came. This word guardian is the word we get a pedagogy. It's a pedagogue or teacher. But teacher for us brings to mind a classroom setting where the primary thing happening is instruction. And in one sense, this, this is true. There is a teaching function to the law. But the first century pedagogue isn't a classroom teacher. That's not their primary responsibility. Families would bring in tutors or pedagogues. They're often slaves. And their primary responsibility was to train the behavior or conduct of children. Not to educate their minds. Not primarily education. The primary responsibility is discipline even more than education. The law prepares. The law restricts. The law disciplines. But what's the point of all this preparation? What's the point of this restriction, this discipline? Verse 22. Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Verse 24, the law was our guardian, our disciplinarian, until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. In other words, the law doesn't exist for itself. The law points us to faith in Christ. Faith in Christ alone justifies. This is the only way. The law holds captive. The law imprisons. The law guards. But it doesn't do this for itself. It does this restricting work to point us to Christ. So, verse 25, now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Faith comes. Faith justifies. Faith sets free. Faith in Christ is the one way. Gathering for worship is what Christians do. But if you think attending church will save you, you will die in your sin. Christians are kind to others. 
But if you think that being a nice person will save you, you will die in your sin. The only way to salvation and eternal life is through faith in Christ and his good works, not our own. In his finished work, in his completed work in our behalf, faith in Christ is the only way. It's stepping from that boat, that sinking boat of self-reliance, into the boat that is Jesus Christ and trusting on him and him alone for salvation. Oh friend, if you find yourself here resting in any idea of your own goodness, of your own good works, would you turn from that? Some people need to repent of the big bad sins. You know, adultery, theft, murder. But others need to turn from those sins. Thinking they're good because they haven't murdered. Because they haven't committed adultery. Or because they haven't stolen. Leaning on your own goodness will send you to hell. Would you turn from your sin? Turn from your self-reliance and trust Jesus alone. As we look at this, the law prepares, restricts, and disciplines. What can the law teach a parent? The law prepares, restricts, and disciplines. Restriction and discipline. Man, that sounds fun. Not. It's not fun. It's not fun to receive discipline, restriction. And kids, believe it or not, it is not fun to give. But discipline is an essential part of parenting. Why is this? Hebrews 12 tells us, The Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Now for the moment, all discipline seems to be painful rather than pleasant. But later, later, it yields a peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. You see, the point of discipline is not the pain of the moment. The point of discipline is not the discomfort, it's the fruit it yields on the backside. No pun intended. Parental discipline is important, but it can't exist for itself. You see, like the law, a loving mom or dad disciplining a child plays a vital role in preparing that child for Christ. That's the point. Parental discipline must be loving, and it must be coupled with clear pointers to Jesus. Proverbs 23, 14 teaches that one of the vital roles of discipline is saving that child's soul from destruction. We discipline children in love to teach them that the wages, the pain of sin is death. But we point them to Christ as the only way to be saved, not from this moment, but from an eternal penalty of our sin. So like parental discipline prepares children to receive the gospel, the law prepares us to become children, sons and daughters of God. Let's read verses 25 through 29. Verse 25, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, 
then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. In Christ, we become one family. Verse 25 signals a shift in focus. The previous verses were under the discipline of the law, but now, now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Verse 26, in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. We have one Father. Before Christ, God is our creator and judge. In Christ, God becomes our Father. Luke 16 and Luke 15 illustrate this for us. In Luke 16, we meet a man who meets God as judge, the rich man in Lazarus. The rich man dies in his sin. In life, he has everything. After death, he has nothing. And he sits there and he cries out. And Luke 16 tells us he is in torment because he died in his sin. He met God as judge and now is in eternal torment. This is the fate of those who don't know Christ. But Luke 15 tells us about those who meet God a different way. Luke 15, we have three parables. The parable of the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son, the prodigal son. The prodigal son has run from God and lived in sin. If there's anyone who deserves God's judgment, it's this son. If there's anyone who deserves pain for the way he's lived, it's this son. But he finds himself one day at the end of his rope. He has lost everything. He's sitting in a pigsty, eating with the pigs, and he says, what am I doing? The servant's at dad's house. They eat better than this. I'll go and I'll beg him, let me become a servant in your house. And he goes, and as he runs home, he's no doubt filled with shame over what he's become. Filled with embarrassment at all that he's lost. And he goes trudging home, carrying the weight of all that he's done. But as he trudges down that road, his father is waiting on the front porch. And while the son is still a long way off, the father sees him. And he gets up and he runs. He lifts his skirts and runs after and embraces that child. And he says, welcome home, my son. Throw a shrimp on the barbie. We're about to have a party. My son was lost and now he's found. My son is here. And those who are in Christ, this is how God greets us. We come trudging with the weight of our cares, with our discouragement, with the very real memory of very real sin that we have committed. That son was in the pigsty and he put himself there. And yet his father welcomed him. Not because his son had done anything good, but because it was the father's nature to love his child. And which of us, if our son were to ask us for bread would give him a stone. Which of us, if our child were to ask us for fish, would give him a serpent? How much more does our Heavenly Father love to bless those who are his children? We have the best Father, an eternal Father, a good Father. And yet we walk through life and life just sends us message after message after message. Things that say God isn't good, this world is better. Things that say we cancel people who do things like you do. We don't love them. And yet, brothers and sisters, it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how badly you've failed. If you come to God through faith in Christ, God 
will welcome you and love you and embrace you like this son. Well, how does this sonship come to us? Galatians 4 tells us it comes through adoption. I mean, it's one thing to see your birth child running down the street. It's another to take those who aren't rightfully a part of your household and welcome them as if they are your children. God welcomes us as sons and daughters in Christ. You see, when we come to God in Christ, we find not only deliverance from sin, not only eternal life, but also a secure place in the best family with the best father. Then verse 28 teaches us we have a new identity. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, no male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. All races equal in this family. No Jew or Greek. Neither slave nor free. All social statuses equal in this family. No male and female. Both sexes equal in God's family. Now look, there are still multiple ethnicities. Multiple cultural and social backgrounds. Important distinctions between male and female. The point isn't that there are no differences. But rather that in Christ the differences don't matter anymore. We are all in Christ. And we are all one in Christ. So I was meditating on this this week. I thought like what does it mean to be part of family? Now as y'all know. I'm one of a bunch of kids. I have eight siblings. There are nine of us. And now, because we're adults, a lot of us have uh, uh, in-laws, and, and so there are a bunch of people. In fact, my daughter reminded us on the way to church that we adopt her son. He'll be the 15th grandchild. There are a lot of, a lot of us. Now, as I was thinking about that, I mean, take the in-laws and cousins, nieces, nephews out. Just take nine kids, same parents, same household, raised largely the same way. There are a lot of differences. I mean, I promise you that the other eight aren't as crazy as I am. They're crazy in different ways. We've all got our own personality. We've all got our own way of looking at life, our own way of dealing with stuff. I mean, you can tell that in the way we raise our kids. I mean, our, our kids, they, they function a little bit differently because the way parents raise kids differs from like sibling to sibling within the same house. I mean, if you looked for nine people on the face of the planet that had kind of the same starting point, you couldn't find people, like, we choose nine of you, y'all have a lot more differences from me than, than they do. But we've got a lot of differences. But how do I think about my siblings? Their family, right? I, mean, I don't think they're so different. Now, I might think that's strange, but I'm not going to say it. You see, I don't relate to them we don't relate to one another in our differences. We relate in our shared identity. That shared identity doesn't, doesn't erase the variety, doesn't erase the distinctions. But it changes how we deal with those distinctions. Because when I get out of line and they got to put up with me, I'm family. When they get out of line and i got to put up with them, we're family. And Paul says that's how it works in the church. That person isn't an old person. That's my brother. 
that's my sister. That gospel preaching church down the street isn't a black church. That's our family. But that's all true. But I do think we'll miss the impact of this if we don't live it in flesh and blood with the people in our local family. You see, I can say, man, I love people. But how do you know if I love people? You see how I treat the people I live with. See how I love my wife, how I love my kids. How do we know if we love our brothers and sisters? We look at how we lean into relationships in the community of faith in this local body of Christ. How do you treat your brothers and sisters? Now, this is all tricky during COVID, but one little thing. Are you the kind of person who scrambles in last minute? Finds your seat, eats your worship vitamin, and exits quickly. Without seeing if there's anyone that you could love on or encourage. You see, extenuating circumstances like COVID may change how we love one another, but they're not going to change the fact that we're still going to be loving and hospitable to family. We are one family. And as part of this family, we have an inheritance. If you are Christ's, verse 29, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. To receive Christ is to receive this promise. All that God promised to Abraham, that promised blessing becomes ours in Christ. What kind of blessing is this? I got a mansion just over. It may be that, but it's probably not talking primarily about that mansion over the hilltop. Ephesians 1 tells us. Ephesians 1 lists the blessings of our inheritance. Listen to Paul's writing. Ephesians 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. According to the purpose of his will, in him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. In him we have an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Lavish, blessing, riches, inheritance, all this is ours in Christ. Oh, brothers and sisters, one family, the best family, a new identity, and a mind-blowing inheritance. What a good father, what a gracious God to lavish this on us. Let's take a moment now and respond to God's word in repentance and faith. I'll give you a moment to talk with God personally, then I'll close this time in prayer.
God, what an amazing thing that you would bless us this way. That you would take those who are far from God, enemies, and welcome us to your table. Oh God, help us to welcome and love one another this way. Help us to welcome and invite people into the family of God. God, I thank you that through Christ, all this and so much more, more than we could ever imagine, is ours. Lord, I pray for those here who haven't yet leaned fully on Christ for salvation, that they will trust him today.